you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke and the second chapter. Our goal and our aim is to study through the Gospel of Luke so that the upcoming year, Lord willing, would be saturated with Jesus and uh, study of Him. But we don't want to be hearers of the Word only and so deceive ourselves. The things we learn, we want to apply to our lives. The Bible says of itself, all Scripture is God-breathed. And just think about that phrase for a moment, God-breathed. It means this literally comes straight from Him. So if you open up the Scripture and study it and it has no effect on you, I just want you to know the deficiency is not with the Scripture. It's a double-edged sword. It pierces straight to the soul. The deficiency is never with the Scripture. If there's ever a deficiency, it's, it's with us. That's why Jesus over and over says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what it does require of us is... Uh, What the Bible uh, constantly honors among people, the Lord does, and that's humility. We've come to hear what the Lord has to say. And in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, we'll read this section together all the way to the end of the chapter. This is, by the way, the only scene in all the scripture that we have of the incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ, as a uh, child. Other than the little baby that we've been reading and studying about during Christmas. Here we get a picture of him at age 12, and it's, it's fascinating. So verse 39, this is after they left the temple with Simeon and Anna that we studied last Sunday. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I want you to hold right there and then go down to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So real quick, just as far as the structure goes, remember Luke says this is an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that you may have confidence in the things that you've been taught. He gives two summary statements about Jesus. One in verse 40, the child grew. One in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. And on the surface, he sounds a little bit redundant. Sounds like he says the same thing twice. But we'll talk in just a moment that he doesn't say the same thing twice. In fact, the differences between the two statements are full of insight and wisdom for us about a lot of things that we'll talk about in just a a moment. So let's read the section that connects those two summary statements, this scene. Any parent knows the terror of losing a child, losing track of a child. If that's ever happened to you, it's happened to me. One time we were in a crowded auditorium and Mary Clara was with me and I told her to go back to her mom and I'd kind of point out, this is really foolish on my part, pointed out where she was across the room and just said, go there. And I had Abel and we were, I think, going to go to the restroom. And somewhere in the midst of her getting to Julie, she kind of got swarmed with the crowd. And then I got to Julie and said, well, where's Mary Clara? She said, I thought she was with you. And that moment that you have said, oh no, she's anywhere in this. And we found her and it's heartbreaking. I mean, she was distraught and and then that moment of coming back together it all, all together lasted about five minutes this last three days verse 41 now his parents went to jerusalem every year at the feast of the passover and when he was 12 years old they went up according to custom now you just get that real quick pretty fascinating jesus is going to the passover now he is the passover lamb 21 years after this, he literally will be the Passover lamb. But he's with his family on the way to Passover. They're in Nazareth of Galilee, so it's a pretty good trip up to Jerusalem. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
Now, his parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not know, excuse me, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Well, uh, I've got three points. You always hear a preacher say that, right? But I do have three of them. There's a moment of confusion. Then there's a moment of correction. And then there's also a moment of clarity. And then we'll tack on to that some practical insights for those who are with children, particularly parents. So that's our... When I get into a car and we're going somewhere, I just always like someone to tell us where we're going. So that's where we're going. So first of all, there's a moment of confusion. That's this moment where they didn't know where Jesus was. Uh, how, how does this happen? Well, how, how it uh, probably took place is when you make a trip like this to Passover, remember it says that they were with relatives and acquaintances. This whole caravan goes up from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It's just a safe way to go. You know, there's no I-95 in those days. You're going down the road and the Roman troops are around, but they're not really going to guarantee, guarantee your safety. A lot of thieves on the, uh, on the highways. And so you'd go in large groups. And don't you know that uh, Jesus is probably not the sort of child that his parents feel like they've got to constantly keep tabs on. Now, as a parent, sometimes you have a child that, you know, you're pretty trustworthy. And then you have a child that you've got to, you know, almost keep under lock and key. You know, you don't ever know where you'll find that child. Well, Jesus, you don't, don't we just assume the way that he is. And the scriptures always says he's submissive with them. They just probably didn't um, have to keep too close a watch. If you've read the gospel of, or the book of James, James strikes you as someone prior to salvation. He probably had to keep an eye on. So that's probably what Mary and Joseph were doing. Where's James? Have you seen James? And so on and so forth. But Jesus, they just assumed he was, he was with them. He's somewhere along. And, but somewhere, it says a day's journey. They probably were stopping to eat and all the children are coming around and then Mary starts looking and okay, here's my, he has other brothers and sisters and here's my, well, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, he may be so. And then there comes a moment they really cannot find him. They really have no idea where he is. And that's when that parental crisis sets in and your heart begins to thump. And they're a day's journey out. So it takes them another day to get back to Jerusalem and probably another full day looking for him. And of all the places they finally found him, there's this moment of great confusion. But you do see what happened. Verse 30, go back up to verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Quiet, obscure Nazareth. And, and uh, we don't get a lot of details, but here's what's going on in Nazareth. Jesus has taken his first steps. A lot of diapers have been changed. He's been taught to learn or to read and to write and all those things. And then we just get one statement and that's how it seems to happen for parents, right? It just happens so fast. All these years go by so, so quickly. And, 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 and I think there's this moment of confusion for Mary 
And do you remember Simeon's prophecy? Remember back the last, last time we were together? Simeon said about Jesus that a sword is going to pierce Mary's soul. And most every mom can relate to that statement in one way, shape, or form. But, but what Simeon was saying is there's going to be something about Jesus, Mary, that's going to uh, pierce you to the core. And I think we get the first little uh, point of the sword just poking her in this scene. Because she has to come to terms with the reality that her baby boy Jesus isn't going to remain in obscure, quiet Nazareth much longer at all. That's not the reason that he's come. And all of us parents, I'll just give you this confession. I'm terribly sentimental. Terribly. It's almost, uh, almost bad how sentimental I am, especially about my children. Seven, five, and two years old now, and they're growing up, and... And I won't talk about it long as I'll start crying. I mean, we're just going, we're just going to move right along. But there's this, there's this uh, desire you have just to kind of keep them and protect them and keep them close and nothing bad ever going to happen. You just stay in my house and my bed. And, and, and Mary Clara, when she's older, she doesn't want to stay in Daddy's house anymore. It's going to happen. And it's happening with, with Jesus. The first little hint. Now, Luke's primary source for the story is probably Mary herself. We get a lot of details in the Gospel of Luke about Mary. We don't get anywhere else. And he says at the very beginning of his book, remember, he went to talk to the eyewitnesses, to the people who were there. And most likely Mary was one of the first ones that he talked to. And we probably, he's getting these details from her. And of all the scenes, of all the pictures from his childhood, only one's recorded in Scripture. So it's a momentous moment. It's a clear picture. And she comes to him, and when she finally finds him, finds him, and that relief washes over him, over her and over Joseph, she says, look what she says. His parents told him, they were astonished. And his mom said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And there's a moment of confusion here, and I think the confusion is regarding what Jesus is all about. Because some people want a Jesus who stays quiet at the house. This is truth be told. Some people, their preference is, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus so long as he stays in Nazareth under my roof and we don't have to go out and we don't have to talk to anybody else. We don't have to serve anybody else. We don't have to, if he'll give me all the benefits and he just stays home with me and I just get to stay home and it's going to be a quiet, calm evening. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not who Jesus, that's not what Jesus is, is about. Now, when we think of Jesus, we often think of him as a newborn baby, as we've been studying, or a full-grown man. It's kind of hard to think about the Son of God at age 12. We're talking about middle school. The middle school years, here he is. But before we move to the second point, I just want you to see a picture that we do get of him. He's in the temple. It's Passover. It's just ended. And it says um, here in verse 46, After three days they found him in the temple. The real temple sitting in the temple, right? They found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, these learned, educated men, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is like a 12-year-old winning a basketball game against LeBron James, right? It's like a 12-year-old correcting Albert Einstein on a science project. These teachers in the temple are the most learned, educated, theologically uh, uh, intelligent people in Jerusalem. And here's this 12-year-old sitting among them. And I just want you to to see the picture real quick because look at the verbs. It says he's sitting among the teachers. Notice the first verb, listening to them. Um, Do you know Jesus is a listener? He listens. He's not a bully. He's not a 
kind of arrogant, pompous know-it-all. He doesn't sit in there and, and, and mock the teachers. He, he, he doesn't belittle them. He listens to them. Sometimes you say in your life, I don't have anybody who listens to me. Well, that's not so. Not if you know where to go. Not if you know who to, to go to. And then also it says he's asking them questions. I mean, you want to talk about pressure, right? You imagine Jesus asking theological questions? I mean, I can remember being in seminary and just having a, 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 a theology professor asking me questions. Asking me to defend myself, asking me to give me some scripture. Can you imagine Jesus, even 12-year-old Jesus, sitting there asking a question? And the scripture says that they are astonished. That Greek verb uh, translated astonished, it's a powerful verb. It it means that basically they're falling on the floor. They can't believe it. Where are you from? You're from Nazareth? Who's your teacher? Nobody's your teacher. How do you know these things? It's It's astonishing. He listens to them. Have you ever been around someone who thinks they know all the answers and they never listen? Maybe you've been around someone, they're talking, you're talking, and they keep interrupting you. That's not the picture we get here of Jesus. As they talk, he listens to what they say, and then he responds. He's not cutting them off mid-sentence. He's not belittling them. He's not dominating the conversation. He does not ridicule them. He, he listens. And it's important in your life who you choose to spill your soul to, so to speak. It's very important who you choose to be the person who listens to you. I encourage you to make it above all the Lord Jesus. He listens. He cares. And then it also says, of course, that he asks questions. He's interested in what they have to say. He's not pompous or, or arrogant. But I also want you to see what else it says. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. Notice what it says. And his answers. And we live in a culture that loves to ask questions but does not offer any solutions. To say here's what the problem is, but not here's what the remedy is. The scripture says Jesus, yes, he listens. But this is not the Oprah Winfrey show where we're just listening. And oh, that's such a nice... He's got answers. And they're astonished that he's got understanding and answers. And in the confusion, his mom shows up in great despair distress after three sleepless nights, three days of worry and fear. So in her moment of confusion, secondly, we get a moment of correction. He responds to Mary and to Joseph in a way that, he, that they did not anticipate. Parents' desire is always for their child to be safe. This may have been Mary's desire too, but Jesus has to make it clear that he has a different priority and it will not be safe. Again, there is going to be a Passover in the not-too-distant future from here that they're going to crucify him. They're going to flog him. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head. And, and Mary's going to be there and see it happen. And the first hint she gets at this is here from his mouth. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, some translations will read differently. Perhaps your translation says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Why the different translations? Where the Greek, uh, it lets the context dictate the translation. Meaning the verb is just to be about my father's. You fill in the blank, but the context says either, you know, the one translation will say about my father's house, in my father's house, or about my father's business. And there is a... um, There is a careful but clear correction when she says, your father and I have been looking for you. And you notice his words. I'm in my father's house. And it's not a 
It's not a moment of disrespect. But it is a moment of saying, yes, I honor you and respect you and I respect Joseph, but my father is God. That's who, that's who my father is. Um, a few weeks ago, my mom was keeping our children, and I've told you before that our third born, we don't quite know where she got her little personality from. She's totally blown up our quiet little house with her sassiness. But she was at our house, and she's taking a stool and putting it on the couch. And those of you who know my mom, you know she's the most gentle, kind uh, person, spirit in the world. And so my mom was trying to correct me. No, we're not going to put the stool on the couch. I mean, it'll poke a hole in the cushion. And besides the fact that you don't stand on a stool on the couch, right? So, so she's being gentle and, and so on and so forth. And finally, my mom does what some grandparents finally do when they're really ready to lay down the law. Go ask your mom. You know, that's, 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 the, that's the grandparent's solution, right? So she goes and asks Julie, finds her in the back of the house. And, and uh, uh, no, no, I'm getting the story wrong. I'm sorry. So, so she's about to put it on. And again, my mom says, no, we can't put it on. And my daughter, my two-year-old, snaps around, looks at my mother, the one who raised me. And she said, this is my mama's house. That's what she said. She looked at her. And um, I wasn't there at the time. I hear all this secondhand. So that's when she goes and gets Julie, and Julie corrects her, and then when she comes back. I want you to know that Jesus isn't being rude to them. He's not being rebellious against them. Why were you looking for me? It's not sarcastic. It's not dismissive. So why, why were you looking for me? Did you not know? The answer to the question is, no, we didn't know. Did you not know I... Must be. Look at the word that he says. Doesn't say I should be. Doesn't say I could be. Those are the words we like to use when it comes to doing the, the things that God commands us to do. Well, I should do that. I could do that. That's not Jesus' word. And the more you become like Jesus, the more you exchange all your shoulds and coulds for must. I must be about my father's business. So, quick time out. Here's the question What's his father's business? What is it that he must be about? I think one of the best places that we get it explained is John chapter 3. So go with me to John chapter 3. If you're in Luke, just one book to the right. John chapter 3. And he's speaking to Nicodemus. Now this is another time that he's talking to one of these teachers. He's not 12 years old anymore though. John chapter 3. Pick up in uh, very famous verse 16. What's his father's business? Why is he here? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I know you know that verse, but just understand the father's business, the stakes could not be any higher. It's about perishing or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God's business is that you not be condemned, but that you'd be saved. How can that happen? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For anyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen 
that his deeds have been carried out in God. What is the Father's business? The Father's business is your salvation. And Jesus will not accomplish that salvation by remaining obscure and quiet in Nazareth. He will accomplish that salvation by going to Jerusalem and being the Passover lamb. The lamb who takes upon himself the just penalty for our sin. So here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the Father's business. It's Him being crucified, and then you decide if you'll accept Him, that His penalty is, is, is for you, and that by faith in the Son of God, you can be forgiven. That is the Father's business. And Jesus tells His mom He must be about it. And here's what a clear theme we'll pick up on in the Gospel of Luke. Nothing absolutely, positively, nothing is going to prevent him from accomplishing his father's business until on the cross, when he's about to die, he says, it is finished. What's finished? The business is finished. Ever go on a business trip, but you don't finish the business, and then it's still... No, Jesus is sent and finishes it. And nothing's going to stop him from doing it. Not these teachers of the law. Not Herod who tried to kill him. And not even his own sentimental, loving mother. One of the, at times, great obstacles to the business of the Lord is not the evil of Herod. It's the sentiment of Mary. It's good things, nice things, pleasant things. Things that we want to hold on to, but they're actually precluding us from carrying out the Father's business. My prayer, my hope, my aim is to raise children about the Father's business. But uh, here's what the Scripture says about those who are godly. They will be persecuted. So it's a little bit of a, it's a, little bit of a catch-22, isn't it? To raise your children, to walk with God, means that you raise your children to be persecuted. Never a bit comfortable in the world but you raised them in a way so that they would not perish. They exchanged the momentary, shallow, passing, fading away pleasures of this world for so much more in the kingdom that is to come. It's a constant struggle, isn't it? We can relate with Mary, right? We just want him to go home and go back to Nazareth. I have that in my heart for my own children. I confess it to you. I want them to be safe and secure and quiet and follow Jesus. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If any man come after me, he must take up his own cross and follow me. So if they are raised and follow him, it may mean that they don't live close to me. They're in another country. They're persecuted or perhaps even martyred. That's the sword that begins to pierce. Oh, excuse me. I got it right on the microphone, didn't I? Pierce the microphone begins to pierce her soul. Verse 50, you want to talk about hard to understand. They did not understand the saying. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now what does Jesus do after this? After this moment of clarity, of this moment, excuse me, of correction. Here's what it says. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother, there's Mary again, and here's her pattern. She treasured up all these things in her heart. Not what a mom does. Treasured up all these things in her heart. 
But now it's no longer the little baby in the manger. It's the 12-year-old Jesus. That's how old he is at this time. And when you're 12 years old, sometimes if you've got children that age, they don't want to be held anymore. They're not going to sit on your lap. You're not going to sing them to sleep. There's this transition that begins to be, to be made. Um, but for all my 12-year-olds in the audience this morning, you say you want to be like Jesus. Here's how you're like Jesus at age 12. He went down to Nazareth and was submissive to his parents. You know what that means? It means he did what they told him to do. We said it's time to cut the TV off. And I know they didn't have TV back then. When he says time to brush your teeth, time to do your homework, time to do such and such, right? He's submissive to them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's what the scripture says. But then let's make one connection. What I want to do is make a connection between verse 40 summary statement and verse 52 summary statement. And you've got to hang with me to make the connection, okay? So let's just read the two verses together. Verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And again, you read those two statements, and they seem like he says the same thing twice, but it's not quite the same. In fact, there's a whole lot of difference between the two, and uh, this will help all the parents, all the grandparents, all the aunts, the uncles, whoever it is that's around children with an aim to raising them to follow the Lord. In verse uh, 40, all the verbs are passive. Now just hang with me. We're going to do a little English lesson, okay? Back in school, English. Do you know the difference between passive verb and active verb? Let me give you an example in English. Here's an active verb. I throw the ball. Who threw the ball? I did. The subject does the acting. Here's a passive verb. The ball was thrown. Who threw the ball? The ball didn't throw itself, right? It was, it was acted upon. So you with me? Passive voice, subject acted upon. Active voice, subject does the acting. So, okay, what, what difference does it make? It makes a huge amount of difference. Because in the first summary statement, talking about Jesus as a little boy, the verbs are passive. That means he was being acted upon. He was being taught. He was being trained. He was being, you know, it doesn't come across clear in English, but he's growing. Right? And it's, and it's something being done to him. Verse 52, age 12. It's not passive anymore. It's, it's active. He's doing the action. Say, okay, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. Here's what it teaches us. Got a little window of opportunity with a child. Say, when they're little and they're small, to to teach them, to nurture them, to shepherd them, to, to, to love them, to encourage them, and to train them up. You remember the proverb, right? Train up a, what? Child. That word means little one. Train up a child in the way they, they should go, even when they're old. So the, Proverbs, the proverb is anticipating a moment of transition. Even when they were old, they will not depart from it. You see that? Okay. See the little child? You, you picturing it in your mind? Got him, right? Next verse. Not a little boy anymore. Not a little child anymore. A transition is happening. When does it happen? I think it's a pretty good indicator here. Around the age of 12. 11, 12, 13 years old. All of a sudden now, things begin to change, right? One, there is a physical growth spurt, right? Can't keep shoes on the child. I just bought those shoes. Now he's outgrown them. 
right? Just go on and get the two-for-one deal. Buy his size and the next size up. That's how you keep. Can't keep milk in the house. We just bought a gallon of milk. Yeah, it's gone. Why? He's growing physically. But do you notice the verb that he uses? The word that Jesus increased in what? He increases in, at age 12, in what had been instilled in him at 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. Does that make sense? So, so if I, I think of it in this way. A child has two stages. The instilling stage and the... Oh, I do need to go to the gym. I'm out of breath. And the increasing stage. It's a really important principle. Are we ready for it? Are we ready for it? The child will increase in what was instilled. Right? Pretty simple, right? The child's going to increase... And what was instilled in him. Now, uh, it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Every child increases in something. And most children will increase in what was instilled in them. For example, if a child grew up at age three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine, And bitterness was instilled in him. Do you know what he's going to increase in? Bitterness. If if a child was instilled with anger and hostility, you know what he'll increase in? Now this isn't a... You understand when we're talking about people, they're not some easy mathematical formula. Every child's different. But it's an important principle for us parents, for grandparents, for aunts and uncles and all those around children. A child is instilled with insecurity. He'll increase in insecurity. And so on and so forth. Jesus increases in wisdom. Let me give you a few practical applications. Transition doesn't take place overnight, but it will take place, right? The the responsibility of parents and grandparents, aunts, uncles, is is to raise up children who increase in these godly characteristics. And it is a and it is a process. Uh, so I want to just give you a couple of quick applications. Number one, be mindful that that transition does take place. And in two ways. One, stage one, understand the transition's coming. Got a seven-year-old girl at home. The thought of her being 13, let's lay down for a minute. But it's coming. It's around the corner. And then she'll be 15 and so on and so with my... So, so, so what's the application? You have to redeem the time. Do you know what I think one of parents, so especially when you have young children, greatest enemies is? It's just utter exhaustion. You're just tired. You're ready to get those kids into bed, right? Just get them into bed so I can sit down. But you, sh- you, you, you tack on too much time like that and it'll be gone. So be mindful of the coming transition. Secondly, we have to equip our children to be able to make wise decisions for themselves. This is particularly true when it comes to following Jesus. I've told you many times, I wish I could believe for them. I wish I could have faith for them. I wish that my trust for Jesus could, be, could kind of be applied to them, but that's, but that's not the way it is. They have to believe for themselves. I can help them and encourage them and pray for them. But there's going to come a t- transition where they have to live their own life, make their own decisions. And when it comes time for that, the, 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 the great danger, and I've seen it happen, is that time comes, and then all of a sudden uh, a parent thinks, I didn't prepare them. 
Now, God's grace is sufficient in all sorts of ways. And none of us, absolutely none of us, have done our doing or will do a perfect job. But, um, but I do want to encourage you, again, the transition comes, and do your best by God's grace to prepare them for it. Third encouragement, persevere during the young years. Here's a verse that I give, I pray for myself often. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And number four, do not procrastinate disciplining the children. (laughs) I've had to learn this lesson the hard way. I've offered it to you before. I'll say it again. It's in our library, a book by Paul Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. If you've not read it and you're a parent and you've got children who are in this stage of life, I I encourage you to get it, check it out, read it. Uh, It says more than we have time to today. But one of the things that it really taught me was not to procrastinate discipline. When they're three and four and five and they're rebellious or throw a tantrum, at first it kind of seems funny, right? Maybe not. It's never funny when you're out in public, is it? (laughs) Always when you're eating around people who don't like children. And the, and the predicament is you just want to procrastinate. Well, I'll tell you, if it's any cute at all at 3 and 4 and 5, it's not cute at all at 13, 14, and 15. The heartache comes when a parent procrastinates disciplining a child during the ages of 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 and ends up with a sarcastic, rebellious, disrespectful middle school or high school child and then tries to do for a 16-year-old what needed to have been done for a 6-year-old. Let's get a balance, though. Children need discipline, but they also need unconditional love, grace, and forgiveness. They're not mutually exclusive. Best example, God himself. Does he discipline you, correct you? Does he unconditionally love you and forgive you? He's the best example of a, of a parent. So let's get a conclusion. What's the main point of all this? The main point of all the things that we've said is that Jesus must be about his father's business. Now let me give you one last picture or application before we pray and close. Does it seem in your life right now that Jesus is far away, distant? We could, could, could we put it this way? Does it feel like you cannot find him? Right? Now, I don't want to stretch the text too much, but do you know where Mary found him? That's why we called the whole sermon where Jesus can always be found. Who, who, who needed to change course? Mary did. Isn't that what the scripture says? They supposed him to be in the group when they went a day's journey. When they did not find him, look at verse 45. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Here's the truth, if we can say it metaphorically in this way. If you're going to spend night and day and night and day looking for Jesus in Nazareth, it's going to be a long search. You have to return to Jerusalem. You have to go where he is, so to speak. You know, if you understand what I'm, what I'm saying. Here's why. 
He must be about his father's business. He must be about his father's business. You know the best place to find him is for you to be about the father's business. So, so do you see, I've had some time in my life where my desire was for him to come join me where I am. Why, why can't he change? He's not going to change. I must be. He set his face, he's going to say, not too many chapters now, set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. The Passover lamb's going to Jerusalem. Why? For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You will always find Jesus about his father's business. You will always find Jesus about reconciling sinners to himself. You will always find Jesus about the cross. So if it's true in your life, apply it this way. We have to stop looking in Nazareth and go back to Jerusalem. He is about your redemption, by the way. God so loved the world that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, we'll conclude, but I just do want to settle on that um, exhortation. There is a place that Jesus can always be found. Always about his Father's business. Let's stand together. We'll pray together. And then we'll have an opportunity for an invitation. The opportunity for an invitation, we always like to say, is, is where we respond to what the Scripture says. You have to be active in its study, and you have to be active in your response to it. So we let the door swing wide open for an invitation. We always say the only thing we don't do during an invitation is nothing. It's not a time to stand there and just think about where we're going to eat or whatever. He says, here's what the Word says. How do I... Holy Spirit, apply this now to my life. Well, bow your heads with me. The application for you might be that you need to return to Jerusalem, so to speak. Jesus isn't distant because uh, He's not where He's supposed to be. But He may seem distant because you need to return. And maybe during the invitation, whether publicly to pray with me as a pastor or to kneel here at the front and seek the face of God. Those who draw near to Him, He says, I will draw near to you. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek for Me with all your heart. Or maybe in your life you, you believe in Holy Spirit's brought a firm point of conviction that that you want Jesus to stay quiet in Nazareth and just live a quiet life and stay at home. But he says, I must go to Jerusalem. Or maybe, maybe you've not submitted to him as Lord. The invitation is open for you to do that as well. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus did not come just to have a theological discussion in Jerusalem with uh, religious teachers. He came to go to Jerusalem as the Passover lamb to be crucified. Thank you that he must be about his father's business and the father's business is our redemption. Father, we thank you that what we need most is what Jesus completed thoroughly, eternally. And he was able to say about your business that it is finished. 
And now the opportunity is presented to us in response to the completed work that he has done to submit to it, to believe it, to trust it, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is much more than one who has theological answers. He himself is the answer. So, Father, help us to respond in a way that we ought to and will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.